Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah. It's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five. Four. We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hey and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? I am feeling terrific, Peter, but I guess we've now got to factor in in an increased likelihood for Billy Shorten as the 31st <laughs> Prime Minister. And I guess that makes me a little nervous yeah. about markets. We'll, we'll talk about the nerves about a Prime Minister, Bill Shorten. And we're not doing it for political reasons, we're doing it purely for hip pocket reasons. Oh, we're only about money here. Money, money, money. (laughs) That's right. And so today we're going to be talking to Paul Murray from Sky, and we'll ask Paul if he thinks that ScoMo can reinvent the government and um, maybe threaten Bill Shorten's grip on the keys to the lodge. It'd be very interesting to see, because I think Paul's been a a bit of a Tony Abbott fan in his time, but I guess it'd be interesting to see what he thinks... ScoMo can achieve. We've also got uh, Tony Nash. Tony Nash is the um, the CEO of Booktopia, uh, New South Wales Business of the Year for Telstra Awards, and a business taking on Amazon. So it's interesting to see. Brave man, right? I know, but they've been do- they've actually gone pretty well. I think they're probably beating the, the normal bookshops or something like that. But we'll see what's been the secret of their success. And we're also going to be talking to a gentleman by the name of Tristan. Kitchener and uh, Tristan is a an expert on retail. Mm. Came, came out, I think, from Sainsbury's, one of those companies, to work for Coles when they were reinventing themselves. He now basically is watching this development of Audi growing. Uh, another German company's coming. Like little was supposed to be coming. Have they come, Paul? I don't think little has come, but there are. Rumoured to be others, and I'm sure our colleague's going to tell us more about that. Yeah. But look, it's, it's interesting you're sort of throwing together the Amazon threat with the... The uh, Germans uh, are coming uh, threat. The Germans <laughs> are coming threat. And I was just thinking about trying not to get any trouble saying that, yeah. Peter. But uh, look, We're all friends nowadays. We are all <laughs> friends. But for, I mean, for share market investors, investing in retail has been a pretty tough ask. Certainly the yeah. discretionary retailers like uh, JB Hi-Fi and, and Harvey Norman have been hit by the Amazon threat. So interesting to hear how Utopia is responding to that. Mm. Uh, sorry, Booktopia is responding to that, but mm. also, Peter... And Utopia. And well. Utopia, but, you know, with the with the supermarket side, I mean, that people were talking a lot about the threat of, of Audi and others and Costco, but we, recently, you know, Woolworths and, and West Farmers, they're the owners, of course, of Woolies and Coles, Shares have been doing okay. Uh, if anything, uh, West Farmers have been going gangbusters. Woolies' report was a bit off, but... I'm with you. I don't think the supermarket wars are over yet, and um, oh. I think there's a bit of a, a cautionary note for investors because a lot of us own shares in in West Farmers and Woolworths. Exactly right. So without any further ado, let's actually go to Tristan uh, Kitchener to see what the future is, and after that we'll talk to Paul Murray about Bill Shorten and the arrival of a new Prime Minister called ScoMo. <laughs> Well, we're now going to be talking to uh, Tristan Kitchener from Tristan Partners. And uh, Tristan, thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome. Now, um, my colleague Paul Rickard is going to be uh, joining in as well. Uh, and we're very interested because, you know, um, a lot of our listeners 
A lot of self-managed super fund people are heavily invested in companies like Wes Farmers, where, which owns Coles, and of course Woolworths. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people invest in Metcash as well. That's the IGA, a sort of parent uh, company. So tell us this, Tristan. How worried should we be if we are shareholders holding stock for Woolworths and uh, Wes Farmers? I think it's a, it's an interesting time in retailing. I think you're seeing that Aldi is very much mainstream. The the discounters, so you know Aldi as well as Costco, and then the the new entrance, which is going to be Coffin coming in late next year, are basically saying that the the market here is really wants a low price, competitive, hard discounter model. Now, if you look back going to the early 90s, you know, Coles and Woolworths bought up the, the Food for Less, the Franklin Brands, rebannered them to, to, to Coles and Woolworths, and actually that, that customer needs still there for, 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 for good value, and Aldi stepped in and is, you know, is filling that need. Mm. So how well is Aldi going since it's arrived? What kind of growth has it had? Well, look, I mean, Aldi's a private company, obviously, so it's, it's hard to know exactly uh, what's going on. But, you know, the, the, the information you do here is that Australia has been very successful and it's, uh, it's the most profitable country globally. Sales will be probably, you know, around 15 billion by, by the end of 2019 and growing 15% year on year. And ultimately taking about a billion dollars a year off Woolworths, Coles, and Metcash year after year. So you're talking a massive amount of sales impact to those to those major retailers. And, and why, um, Tristan, is Audi so successful in Australia in terms of, uh, compared to the rest of the world, is it because margins are higher here in Australia or are we just more compulsive shoppers? What, what makes Audi Australia better than, say, Audi in the UK or, for that matter, Audi in, in Germany? Yeah, so look... When you compare, Australia's very attractive, Aldi, because, you know, it's, it's high supermarket margins. The profit pool is, is big. Um, store rents are high. Uh, Labour costs are high. So that ultimately means it's really attractive to the hard discounters. And when you look at the, the, the business model of Aldi, you know, the low-cost the low cost business model, Labour is, is the single largest operating cost for supermarkets. Aldi runs at what's thought to be about 6% of Labour to sales, whereas Coles and Woolworths be around 10 to 12%. Mm. So, you know, and, and, you know, on top of that, the discounters use labour far more efficiently than, than Coles and Woolworths would do. Mm. So, you know, a big difference. Is that because Coles and Woolworths has a much bigger com- um, fresh food component and that would require a lot more labour time than just, you know, um, shelf stackers? Yeah, look, certainly part of it. Um, mm. You know, Aldi is by no means a fresh food specialist, but you can see that some of the things that they're starting to do recently is as they're experiencing uh, cannibal, as they're opening new stores down down the, the East Coast, they're starting to cannibalise sales in more mature stores. So they're saying, look, we do need to increase participation in fresh, and they're, they're doing a pretty good job of it, but they haven't got the skill set, the fresh food skill set that Coles and Woolworths have got in terms of technologists, product developers, and, and the guys who go and visit all the producers around the countryside. So, you know, they are coming from a, you know, from further behind than, than Coles and Woolworths. How um, important is sort of the Aldi model to have this once a week sort of special 
on a whole lot of non-normal items that they mm. stock. So, for example, you might see a diesel generator on sale one week. <laughs> Next week, it's a fishing rod. The week after Do that, it's a... Have you actually seen a diesel generator? No, but I, I did. I was looking for it because I tried to buy a diesel generator. They've done it. They're and good. It, yeah. yeah. But look, how important is that in, the, in sort of the whole Audi, um, you know, model. game plan, model? Yeah, look, I think it is such a, a clever tactic in their strategy because what they're really doing is they're capturing the efficiencies from holding low, in, low inventory, but they're generating a perception with customers. They're actually getting a really wide range of products. So Aldi only has 1,500 product lines compared to the sort of, you know, the 17 to 20 to 25,000 that you might get in the Coles and Woolworths. And, you know, ultimately, grocery shopping is pretty dull. So what Aldi has done is they put these center of, center of store specials that, you know, when it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It's saying, well, I'm going to bring some excitement back to grocery shopping. You don't know what you're going to get. And, you know, take, take skiwear. You know, Aldi's now the biggest uh, seller in the world of, of skiwear. And they really Staggering, trade off the, the, you know, being different, the, the word of mouth marketing with the Aldi files, the fear of missing out. And the way that Aldi really get you in as a shopper is you'll come in and, you know, you'll say, oh, look, I've gone and bought a fishing rod and it's been fantastic. And you go and tell your friends, oh, look, great fishing rod. And they'll go in. And then from fishing rods in the middle of the store, you'll start to transition onto other grocery products. It might be the, the imported German Pilsner beer. <laughs> and then slowly, slowly, the holy grail, get you into fresh foods. And once you're in fresh foods, mm. they really, really have you. Yeah, I must admit, I was sucked into Aldi probably five years ago when they were selling a, a stainless steel barbecue for like $200 and like the same kind of barbecue is well over a thousand maybe $1,500 in barbecues galore and something like that but when, when you got this they realized no oh, they just sell Vegemite they just sell a whole lot of stuff and it's a very good um, lost leader model isn't it? Absolutely and you know you, when you see some of the businesses that are being packed here today it's not actually just the Coles and Woolworths it's the it's those you know those um, non-food retailers the reject shop Bunnings you know they're selling drills and tools and, and you know and kids toys and so you can see that the the effect of Aldi is, is much much broader than just grocery food. So what's Coughlin going to look like? Yeah so Coughlin's really interesting so they're, uh, again, another German hard discount. And, you know, the Germans do love their, their low prices. So they are across about six countries in, in, um, in Europe, the old Eastern Bloc countries. They have a product range of about thirty to 35,000 product lines, very heavy into private label as well. So bear in mind, you know, as I said before, that sort of, you know, seventeen to 20,000 lines in a major, major grocery store. So um, it's, it's an Aldi, Costco blend, lots of, lots of general merchandise. But the, the biggest difference about Coughland is they, they generate, they, they actually use five different formats of stores. So they range from about 3,000 to about 20,000 square meters. So because they've got these different formats, they're not restricted to the expansion that Aldi has gone under where every store is, a, is the same size. They could be quite flexible. And they also have a, a higher presence of fresh foods, which is they're thought to be about 30% fresh, which again is, is higher than Aldi. So I think there's a quite, quite a nice niche there. And given the fact that you know, you've got all those master's stores that are, are still available. I think there's 60 or 70 of those mm-hmm. stores still available in the sweet spot of those stores, 15 to 20,000 square metres, which fits right into that sweet spot for coffee. So, so they're, they're a bit of a, a big box merchant, are they? 
Correct, yeah. Mm. Big box, big box merchant, yeah. Mm, And and where do we expect um, them to open for business? Is it East Coast, Sydney, Melbourne? What's the sort of, uh, Tristan, when do they open and where would it be? So they've got sites in Dandong and Vic and and also another site in Adelaide. So you think they would do the, the, you know, the hub and spoke type model whereby they'll have it similar to Aldi. They'll open one DC and they'll drop sort of 25, 30 stores around each of those DCs. And as they mature in those, you know, in in Victoria and Adelaide, they will then look to extend into other regions. And you would assume that New South Wales would be the next one, next one off the rank. All right, mate, so by the way, you are actually writing a piece on Amazon for our website, which will be on our website tomorrow. How has Wes Farmers or Coles and Woolies and and Metcash been affected by Amazon? Are they having any impact at at this point in time? I think you can see... You know, if there's no direct impact in terms of sales, I don't think yet. But what's interesting about Amazon entry is how it's changed the behaviours of Coles and Woolworths. So they're getting Amazon ready. They're, they're you know investing in their online sites. They're saying how can we leverage our bricks and mortar stores more um, and actually understand the customer better. When you look at what Amazon is good at, they're great at collecting all sorts of data and using that to offer things to people that they didn't even think they needed in the first place. So it's really important for Coles and Woolworths to get on the front foot. And when you consider the, the engine room of, of Amazon is the is Amazon Prime, the subscription model where you buy into it at you know fifty nine dollars a year now in Australia, just launched just recently. Um, you get, you know, photo storage, movies online, um, free delivery, et cetera, et cetera. So Coles is now looking at their taking flybys and doing a very similar subscription model with flybys where they can bundle value into a into a year round subscription. And ultimately bring people into the the ecosystem so amazon is all about how do i bring customers into the amazon ecosystem mm. and then keep them there do, do you think amazon prime's going to work in australia absolutely mm. I, you, you look at every country they've gone to and it's been hugely successful and i think there's you know with, with the australia entry they've gone a little bit softer i think everyone expected it to be really sort of you know deep discounting early on mm. and that's not necessarily just what amazon's about their their business model is is about you know it's it's a two-pronged business model it's about owning the customer at one end but also owning the supplier so this open access to all customers, all business, they capture those economies of scope and range, the scale benefits invested to lower prices and more range, and that gives that builds the customer value proposition and it increases loyalty. So that means that you know, the enablement of that is cash and first move advantage, which they've got, and what they then get out of it, data and analytics. So if you're a branded supplier and Amazon sees that you're, you know, let's say you're Duracell batteries and you're selling you're selling batteries on the Amazon platform. Well, Amazon will see that and they'll say, oh, look at that. Batteries are selling really well. I know. We'll, we'll, we'll private label it and we'll, we'll create our own Amazon basics. And you look at what, what they've done in America. I think, you know, the battery market in America is 110 million and in the online space. And Amazon, it's an Amazon's basic private label range, owns 92% of that in terms of market share. So you become dependent as a supplier as well as a customer on that Amazon ecosystem, and you are, you know, you're trapped. Tristan, thanks for joining us, mate. You're welcome. That's Tristan Kitchener from Kitchener Partners. And we're back in a moment, and we're talking to Paul Murray about whether ScoMo 
can wrestle the keys of the Lodge from Bill Shorten in the next election. Well, it's ad time, and don't forget we've got the Switzer Listed Investment Conference coming up. That's the 11th of September in Brisbane, 12th of September in Melbourne, and the 13th of September in Sydney. And it's an opportunity for you to hear a, a whole lot of really successful fund managers who do a lot of things differently. Some will invest overseas, some will invest locally, some will invest in particular themes. And that's the kind of day where I think you'll learn a lot and you might think to yourself, gee, that might be an interesting way of making a bit of money. So that's the Listed Investment Conference, again, 11 September in Brisbane, 12 September in Melbourne, and the 13th September in Sydney. If you want any more details, go to switzer.com.au and you'll see more information about these conferences. Okay, my next very special guest is Paul Murray from Paul Murray. Is it still called Paul Murray Live, Paul? Well, we've got to make sure everyone, you know, can't change the host. Absolutely, mate. How are you? <laughs> Great stuff, mate. Thanks for joining us. I instantly thought about you when I, I saw the results last Friday. And I guess that the, the stand-up question is, were you surprised at the result? No. It seemed obvious that, uh, that Malcolm Turnbull was stalling for time and doing everything he can to, to drag his feet. Um, people didn't know whether it was going to end up being Julie Bishop up the middle or whether it was going to be Scoma up the middle. Mm. The only reason I say not surprised was because you know, there was something fairly obvious that a certain amount of momentum had fallen out of the Dutton campaign and the deliberate attempt of the Prime Minister, who I, you know, I can't be more critical of, um, you know, in terms of the way that, uh, that, that CEO exited the business, um, short mm. of barricading himself in the, uh, in the office, mm. um, you know, raising made-up questions about uh, potential alternatives. Well, that was always going to push one or two the other way, and we are where we are. But also, I've just got to say too, Pete, which is, let's, let's be absolutely clear, and I want to kill a miss right now, mm. that, uh, you know, Peter Dutton and sort of the evil knuckle-dragging people like me are supposedly the ones that want the Prime Minister down. Well, let's imagine that, uh, never forget, the final vote, uh, vote in that party room was 45-40. 40 people voted for Peter Dutton, 45 people voted for Scott Morrison. Mm. The vote to have the vote, which essentially was do we keep or kill Malcolm Turnbull, was 45-40. Five of Turnbull's own people had come to the stage when they had felt it was time for a change. So I'm not going to pretend that uh, Conservatives didn't do you know, four-fifths of the work, but uh, the, the, the final swing comes from one of his own. Now, I've got Paul Rickard with me here, um, who's my co-host on the show, Paul, and I, 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 and he's, he's dying to ask you about, you know, the unity thing that, that might happen going forward. Yeah, Paul, what do you think uh, ScoMo needs to do to be in a winning position come, say, uh, May 18 next year? <laughs> Very specific date. Somebody's got a dollar on it. I love it. Um, well, Sammy, you can go that long, right? <laughs> I, we we <laughs> yeah, did have Malcolm McCarris uh, a few weeks back, and Malcolm was speculating May 18 as well. He's pretty good on those sort of things, but go for it, oh, Paul. Yeah, yeah correct. Uh, um, look, I think that, look, he, he already starts from behind, and even if he's leading in the polls, he won't be the favourite to win the next election, right? So we all know that's what he's pushing against. So I think what he's, the smartest thing he's done is when he's put his, his ministry together, um, he split energy and environment. He put 
a conservative in charge of energy and said that their job is to bring down power prices. Uh, there's another person in charge of environment, and basically, I think rather than there won't be any dramatic pull out of Paris or anything, but it'll basically be a go slow, uh, and you know, steady issue goes, and basically we're going to hit that 26% Paris target anyway. In terms of the the fires of conservatives and and, and agro people like myself, look, let's be straight. If a Pentecostal Christian who stopped the boats isn't good enough for you. Well, I'm not entirely sure you want to vote Liberal. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that, that you're interested in voting Liberal. You know, I, I repeat, I was deeply critical of Malcolm Turnbull. I felt he was, um, he was the type of person who felt they could lose a million traditional voters and then pick up a million voters who vote for Labor. But surprise, surprise, people weren't willing to vote for the party of offshore detention um, and... Uh, lovey-dovey about climate change. Uh, there's a suite of policies that need to happen, and in, in straight answer, ScoMo's basically got to start to be a little more, a little more Howard, a little less Abbott, um, you know, a little more traditional, and a, and a lot less caring about what Twitter and Channel Two see. Mm. And, and if you can rebuild the base, let's say that uh, you know that there's a bit of peace pipe is being smoked with, with, with the right and. Uh, uh, Tony and others come on board or at least don't get in his way, what does he then need to do with the public? I mean, is there still a sort of a perception that this government is a do-nothing government? What, what, what sort of things would you be suggesting he focus well, on in the next I, eight months? Sorry, Paul. I still think that the best... If, if the strategy is all about you can't trust Bill Shorten, then you need to give them a sense of what's at risk. Um, I think a spectacular line that, uh, that Scott Morrison was able to weaponise was this idea about a million jobs, a thousand jobs a day, yep. uh, and that starts to be a very practical idea of what are you risking. I think in terms of uh, economic portfolios, all the rest of it, Frydenberg is a very strong and solid man. I trust you guys a million more on uh, points on what has to happen here. But in terms of the base, just uh, put it this way, Scott Morrison used to be the state director of the New South Wales Liberal Party, a bloke who was able to come up through the middle and, uh, you know, you, you can, in, in the worst possible way, use Malcolm Turnbull as his human shield, as the best possible way was a loyal soldier until the general fell. Uh, he understands a thing called maths, mm. and he knows that there's a million people who didn't vote for them at the last election who went and found places like One Nation. So he knows he has to pull those people back, and that's what starts to to strengthen them up, but also I thought it was spectacular that his first interview that he gave wasn't to uh, insiders and it wasn't to outsiders, it was to, to macker on Australia all over about yeah. the drought. Good point. But that's what he's got to do, go mm, up yeah. the guts, go yeah. up the guts, go to FM radio and yeah. speak to, 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 to compulsory voting Australia. Yeah, I, I don't know if you read my piece this morning where I actually... Um, tested Alan Jones's um, comments on uh, ScoMo's economic performance. Now, I did that not because I'm anti-Jonesy, uh, he's a colleague of my 2GBs, but I taught Scott economics, so I've got a vested interest in, in having a look at what he performed. And really, when you look at the performance of uh, Morrison, it actually has been a good one. Not as good as, say, Peter Costello, but it's been a pretty good Treasury performance. Oh, uh, absolutely. And you consider... 
Oh, what's that term that, you know, all you financial people use? Headwinds. Mm. I don't know what headwinds are, but, you know. <laughs> the opposite of tailwinds. <laughs> it's, it's what, yeah, it's yeah. what I, you I, might receive if you went to an ABC cocktail <laughs> party, mate. Headwinds. <laughs> <laughs> be more like a storm, hey, I reckon. Right? Tsunami. <laughs> I'd be like that boat in the you know, the great geostorm. I wouldn't care. It'd be fantastic. Um, look, I, I, I think that he has been hasn't got enough credit as a treasurer and hasn't got enough credit as a politician. I think that, you know, and I mean this, you know, he's a mate I've gone to the football with plenty of times. There's enough of a dag in this bloke that's going to connect with people. Um, There's enough of a traditionalist that's going to connect with people. And in terms of economic competency, now look, I think this bloke's been a good treasurer. What will haunt him as a prime minister is he can't hide from half a trillion dollars debt. He can't hide from budget deficits. He can't hide from voting against the Banking Royal Commission. But what he can start to talk about is small to medium business tax cuts and individual tax cuts. And perhaps the best thing about the major tax cuts not being able to pass through the Senate is the government's already made a decision it's going to forego the dollars in revenue. Well, I would be speeding up the implementation of the personal tax cuts and speeding up the implementation of the small to medium business ones. Mm. And those, again, are all things that you've, you've got to sell to people are the risk with shorten. So I think that, look, he, he, as someone put it to me, for him to win, he's got to be basically perfect between now and May, and no human being can be. But the best shot they have of being able to thread a pretty, pretty narrow needle, I think, is Morrison. And so... Can I ask this question? Because you know Tony Abbott pretty well. I know him, but not as well as you do. Do you think he's mm-hmm. he's going to accept this decision and, and get behind him and support him all the way through to the next election? Absolutely, and I think he should. Um, I don't think that he is going to be as enthusiastically supportive or as aggressively supportive as he would have been Peter Dutton. I know that there's the history of who said what and who dutted who and all of this business, but again... I think that for those of us who have had a massive problem with the Liberal Party for a few years, um, Malcolm's gone. Mm. In my view, the cancer is gone. Mm. So you've got to work out, okay, um, if, you, if you're part of this, then fire up. Now, my belief, and the, run, the line I'm going to run between now and the election is going to be, um, you know, I think people should vote for the Liberal Party in the lower house and take out insurance against them in the upper house. Um, by that I mean, you know, if immigration is your thing, vote One Nation. If uh, a balanced budget is your thing, vote uh, Australian Conservatives, because they will force a, re- a returned government to stick to its word. And I think that's how you take out the insurance policy. So if I was Abbott, I think he has to take the job uh, today uh, that's being offered to him in Indigenous Affairs, uh, get on the radio with Ray Hadley, Ben Fordham, uh, get onto shows like this mm. and advocate. Find a way to talk them up. You don't have to say Scott Morrison is walking on water, but let's be honest, we all know the game. They've found a way to talk uh, Turnbull down and Turnbull made it very easy. Their job now is to find a way to talk them up. Should ScoMo have gone one step further and brought Abbott into his cabinet? I think so, but I think that the decision that he's made to not have him there but to give him an olive branch of something to do, again, these are little incremental differences between what what Turnbull was willing to do and what I think Abbott is willing to cop. And and again, you know, part of the problem for Turnbull was that if if you weren't willing to throw yourself off a cliff for him, you were dead to him. Uh, the problem is, is that there's you don't want 
a, a grand mass of people who are dead to you up the back of the bus. You want everyone to feel that they've got a job, that they've got something to do, that they've got a purpose, that they've got a focus. So once the decision was made not to have him in Cabinet, and I'm, you know, there's, there's public reporting that maybe Dutton was going to think twice about it too, but they've found a job for him. He should accept it quickly um, and, and get in there and, and have a yak to the bush. Great stuff. Paul, thanks for joining us on the program. Absolutely. Don't forget, too, when we're talking about Indigenous affairs, having a job, the quality of the economy, mm-hmm. all of those things mm-hmm. are relevant to black, white and brindle people as well. So yep. that's part of the, the skill for Abbott. Anyway. Excellent, thanks, mate. Thanks for joining us. Well, our next guest is Tony Nash. He's the CEO of Booktopia, and uh, his company was named New South Wales Business of the Year in the, the famous Telstra Awards. And uh, congratulations, Tony. And I got my first question to you has to be, how can you guys do this with Amazon out there threatening an online business like yours? <laughs> thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, look, um, look, Amazon is everything to everyone. And when you're everything to everyone, you cannot be one thing to one vertical market. And that's what we do. So we've, we're focused on books very specifically. So the value proposition that we bring to the market is, is that. And they know that everything around that, which could be sponsoring writers festivals, indigenous literacy, etc., all these things that we do, it resonates with customers. So, and we've seen around the world where people, um, have succeeded businesses that have succeeded where Amazon is. So it doesn't mean just because Amazon's here that you you can't succeed. You can. You just okay. have to focus on what you're doing and do it do that well. Yeah, and Tony, what's really interesting for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of started around the time when Amazon started, and Amazon did start off primarily in if one's correct if I'm wrong, books and and CDs and stuff. Now, but you still. Yeah, took them on, and you've you've grown this business like Topsy. Well, I mean, Amazon actually did start ten years before us in 1994. Yeah, um, but we we started in 2004. Funnily enough, on the same day that Facebook started. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we look. We um, the the thing about Amazon today is is that books is. Uh, $6 billion of their revenue, but out of $170 billion, that's, that's only just over 3% of their yeah, revenue. Yeah. So although that may be where they came from, it's not what they are today. So, Tony, given that Amazon started in books, uh, and I guess for many of us we probably think of books as a bit of a commodity, and I'm sure uh, what makes Booktopia unique? What, what's your value proposition that Amazon doesn't have? Oh, look, I think uh, most people would say that we're, when it comes to books, we're probably fairly similar in terms of we have a huge range of product. Uh, we, we hold it in stock um, that it's readily available to the Australian market. We definitely focus on Australian titles mm-hmm. and Australian authors and Australian publishers more than Amazon. Amazon today, though, they, they really, in terms of their website, are more interested in promoting the marketplace. So the marketplace is where someone wants to sell a book to someone else and and Amazon is happy to promote that into the buy button and they take their commission, which actually gives them more profit than trying to sell it and fulfill it themselves. Mm. So are you actually using Amazon yourself? On very limited titles. The ones that we um, have uh, the distribution rights or the ones that we have um, stock that we know that um, is not easy to get, we do list them on Amazon, but very, very limited. Yeah. So are you a bit more like then a, 
what I'll say, an old-fashioned bookseller, the one, one you walked into and they actually helped you choose the book? Is, is that part of, uh, you know, what, why customers come back to you? Or is it, again, because the focus is a little more Australian in terms of the authors and the availability and, the, and the, presumably the reviews and critiques and so forth? Definitely, definitely not like an old-fashioned um, retailer because, um, yeah, we've got 13,000 square metres um, of logistics, distribution, automation um, in, in our facility. Um, we are shipping around twenty-five to 30,000 individual books per day. Mm. Um, but the, what we do have um, is we try and emulate as best we can what you would get if you were in a bookstore but online. And that means right. lots of rich content, author interviews, um, podcasts, things that we can try and uh, influence and connect a, a, a potential reader with a book that they may not have considered. And that, that's not easy to do, but we just do the very best we can because you'll never do as well as someone who's in a bookshop in front of a, a bookseller who's really passionate about books. It's impossible, but mm. of course you can't scale that. That's the issue. Tony, um, l- looking at you know, the, the, the future of you know, books themselves, has you know, a lot of people tr- tried to say that they would die a death because everyone will be reading online. What, is, what has been the real story over the last, say, five years? Yeah, well, it hasn't gone the way that um, the, the cynics have suggested, hmm. uh, that the death of the bookshop, the death of physical books, it's actually um, bounced back. And book sales in Australia have been very stable, around $2 billion a year. Um, and, and we're finding now that people have tried e-books. It wasn't for them. Many do love e-books and, and they, they read them, but um, a lot of people are now turning back to the physical book, so that's, that's good news. They've actually like a break from the screen or uh, there's been actually tests where you actually retain more information when you read the physical version of the book. Um, uh, teachers who have tried to do the digital uh, classroom have realised that the, uh, the educational outcomes they're trying to achieve, uh, they're actually achieving them better when they've reverted back to the physical um, books and, and materials that they use in the classroom. So yes, it, it hasn't actually worked out the way that they, they predicted. And, and I feel that books are going to be around for, and you've got to understand I'm a technologist. So, you know, my company is, is a digital company, but we, we feel that physical books are going to be around for decades. And Tony, fulfillment cost-wise, like at the end of the day, uh, I would have thought the American fulfillment cost should be higher than yours. Is that the actual case. The, uh, sorry, the American the, yeah, the fulfillment, cost. like the cost of getting books flown in from the the US and whatever, or, or does Amazon have books here nowadays? Amazon does have books here now that they're set up in Australia. Yeah. So they've got a facility in Melbourne, mm. and they've just launched one in Sydney. Um, it's still not necessarily co- totally committed to books because, of course, they're selling everything. Mm. Um, but the uh, the issue for America or the or for Amazon in Australia is that America's logistics framework is very, very saturated in terms of there's lots of destinations right throughout the country, whereas Australia being so um, distributed where um, even to Canada, which Canada has not gone well for Amazon, in Canada their top three cities have uh, in, in per square kilometre there's 900 people, but in Australia in our top three cities there's only 300 people per square kilometre. So you, you have to travel further. The costs are more, and I think Amazon 
you know, they're going to have to come across, say, if they have not already, mm. just the extra cost, not only in logistics and delivery, but also labor costs. I mean, we are three times more expensive in our uh, distribution center than their American distribution centers per hour to employ someone to pick and pack and, and ship a book. Mm. So in terms of this award, uh, you've won the New South Wales version, you go off to the, the nationals now. How important is this going to be mm-hmm. uh, for you as a company to, to take this award out? Uh, look, is it, in terms of importance, look, it's it's part of we're, we're, our goal. We do, we're turning over $120 million this year. Our goal is to get to $200 million. So we, we are just on track to do that. Any awards that we win um, are, are amazing and wonderful. I think uh, in terms of our customers, our suppliers, uh, the readers, I think it's a real it's it's a real uh, endorsement of their them backing us and believing in us. But for me personally, and I think the executive, it's just like, it's just a signpost to say you are on track, you're doing what you're doing, and, and people are recognizing you for that. Um, I think anything beyond that um, it will come as a complete surprise. If, the, if it happens to give us more benefits and things, I, I'm, I'll be surprised. Right now, we just keep focusing on what we're doing, continue to grow the business. Because we've, you know, 10 years ago, we were turning over $4 million, and mm. we're, we're Last financial year just passed, we turned over $114 million. So just keep growing. Are you considering listing one of those days? Well, we did try and do it in 2016, and we Mm. spent quite a few million dollars attempting to do that. Unfortunately, just as we were about to get ready to list, the announcement came that Amazon was uh, coming to Australia. And, of course, all of the fund managers and people Mm. with money said, oh, Amazon's coming. No, no, you're going to you're going to fail, or you're going. To, we we don't want to invest in you. So at this stage, we just have to keep growing and keep funding everything we've done is out of out of our own funds. We started on a ten dollar a day budget, and we've never raised any capital. Mm. So we just keep selling books and using that money to reinvest. Well, it's a great local success story, Tony, and uh, we're always proud of Aussies showing them how, showing others how to do it. And it's a, I wish you a lot of luck at the, the national awards. So usually in November, aren't they? Actually, they're in uh, September 18th, 19th. Mm. The 20th is the night of night this okay. month, September. Well, wish you a lot of luck, mate. We hope particularly because you're a New yeah. South Wales-based business that you come out on top. Well done, mate. All right, so Thank that's uh, Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia. Tony, thanks for joining us and good luck with the awards. Now, Paul, let's just do uh, a few questions, eh? Uh, Alice from Erina wrote in and said, I've been told an offset account with my home loan can mean you can pay off your loan more quickly and it's tax effective as well. But tell me why. Well, it's not really tax effective, but certainly you can pay your home loan off faster. And the reason with an offset account is, is essentially when you put a deposit into your offset account, it actually reduces nominally the principal of your home loan. Mm. And so the interest is being charged on a smaller amount. So let's say, for example, you're getting paid your wages. If your wages go straight into your offset account, it actually reduces your home loan. The interest gets charged on a lower amount. And as you draw out from the offset account to obviously to pay for the supermarket or go out to dinner or whatever you're using your money for, your loan goes up a little bit. So all it does is actually reduces the total amount of interest that you're going to pay on your home loan. Because your interest is charged daily with, your with lots is, of loans. is calculated daily on the balance. Now, you could do exactly the same. You could just get paid into account and you could sweep it into your home loan. Mm. But, you know, effectively wouldn't have the access to the money. So mm. it's a great thing to have. It's worthwhile if you are taking out a home loan, particularly 
for, for you know, dual income families where they have got payments, uh, salary every fortnight or every month, if you can, take out the full mortgage, get an offset account and run your offset and that way you'll pay the lowest amount of interest you, you need to on your home loan. If they put the money into a separate account and then the bank calculates the interest on that account, that interest would then go into your tax return. It, it would, Peter, but the reality is you're going to get paid an interest rate of something like 0.01%. Maybe, so, so maybe it's, it's the smallest of tax effects. Maybe, maybe something like that. Whereas, of course, on your home loan, you're being charged a rate of three and a half, four, four and a half percent. So, it's very hard to actually. Uh, earn interest at that same after-tax rate. And, and also, Paul, when these offset accounts came in, home loan interest rates were really high, and so were deposit interest rates on ta- savings accounts, wasn't it, as well? And that's what probably is more t- tax-effective. Yeah, so b- bottom line, if you take out a home loan, get an offset account, get your salary, all your permanent sort of uh, credits paid into the offset account, mm. get all your debits from your offset account, you can use, use your card from it. So yep. uh, it makes sense to, uh, to use it as much as Without you can. Without a doubt. This is Jason from Brighton in Victoria. He says, I've been to three banks that have promised to give me a home loan. And I made sure I had the lenders in place before shopping for a home. But now I found one of the lenders, nearly all all the lenders are actually saying no. I have a successful small business, but I've been told lenders prefer people with stable jobs. Do you have any ideas because I want to go to an auction in two weeks' time? Well, I think that's a, it's a problem we're starting to hear a lot more, and this, of course, is coming as the banks, uh, you know, partly because of the Royal Commission, but, but more so from MAPA and the tightening of all the lending rules yep. and... Uh, you know, they're all a bit worried about their being seen to, um, you know, they want to meet their obligations, the so-called responsible lender test, and uh, they're sort of running away from some of what, not necessarily higher risk loans, but people perhaps like you, Jason, sounds like you're self-employed, yeah. probably got a good business, but it's a bit hard maybe to produce the pay slip every week or yeah. fortnight that yeah. they need. Uh, and so they're running away from people like you. So I think... Uh, if you want to go to an auction in two weeks' time, Jason, I'd be talking to a really good mortgage broker. Yeah. And that I mortgage agree. broker, if they're any good, will say, look, I know which of the banks. It might not be one of the majors. could be one of the small banks. could mm. be one of the niche financiers, like yep. Switzer Home Loans, or yep. you know, other people in that market who are available to lend the funds and uh, might be a bit more accommodating. But it's going to pay to shop around. You want to talk to someone who can help you, I think. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that that's the important point that, Paul's making that since the Royal Commission, since APRA has cracked down a lot of the lenders, they're asking for a real lot more information than ever before, aren't they, Paul? Like, once upon a time, they didn't even ask whether your kids go to private schools or not, and they want to know how, how, what fees you're paying. So it's becoming tougher, but the best thing I would do, given the fact you've got a short timeline until you get to the auction, I would go to a couple of mortgage brokers, because some are better than others. And uh, I think, provided you know that you can prove that your business is as successful as you say, you probably will get that loan. But you might pay a slightly higher. You might pay rate. a bit more, but also, Jason, look, go to the extra mile. Don't be afraid to give them more information because what you're going to find out is that is that the banks are going to come back and ask lots and lots of questions. So you mm. may as well give the information up front. A good mortgage broker, uh, he or she will know who's still in the marketplace and. Uh, as I said, you may pay a little bit more, but if you want the finance, that's what I'd be doing. And uh, get, you know, if you've got two weeks, I'd get onto it quickly. Yeah, without a doubt. So that's the show for today. Paul, thanks for joining us. Um, I didn't ask you this question. Do you think ScoMo could turn around the popularity? I, I think ScoMo can, but uh, I agree with what Paul said uh, a little bit. He's going to have to unite the right 
So the, the crazy right wingers, Paul Murray won't, wouldn't have called them that, but that's mm. my view. They've got to get on, on board. And he's going to have to deliver some things to then the Australian part, part, people, not only show that they're a united party, that they're doing a few things. Yeah. And uh, yeah. look, it's still May 18 next year, still the likely date if he survives. That's still eight months, uh, honeymoons. Uh, we saw what happened in New Zealand, say, for example, with uh, Cinder Ardern, right? Yeah. Uh, came out of nowhere from what was then a very popular national yeah. prime minister. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, he's now sort of been able to show it. So new leaders can do it, but mm. they don't have a lot of time and they have to, in this case, they've got to have a united front mm. and uh, they've got to then convince the people that they're doing something. Yeah, well, remember Paul Keating won the unwinnable election, but he was helped by the fact that Dr John Houston had a 15% GST. <laughs> I don't that. think Bill Shilton's going to be running And the birthday cake, and he couldn't explain it. That's <laughs> exactly right. That famous 1993 current affair interview, I think yeah, it was. Exactly. Mike Wilson. Mike Wilson. At, at his prime. Yep, exactly right. So that's the show. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for uh, listening to The Switzer Show.